So you're Canadian, but you play field hockey. I think the kind of obvious question, I don't know if anybody else has asked you, I'm sure growing up you got asked, why do you play field hockey instead of, I'll say, real hockey, quote unquote? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's in Canada, yeah, definitely the wrong hockey. Um, <laughs> uh, so I played a little bit of ice hockey growing up um, as well. It's such a fun sport, but uh, I was never very good at it. And also, I'm much too small to be an ice hockey player. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to soulpre.com. Smart Athlete Podcast, I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today has his PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology. Currently, he's in a postdoctoral position at Harvard Medical, and why he's here, in part, uh, he was part of the Canadian Olympic field hockey team in 2016. Welcome to the show, Ben Martin. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Okay, Ben, I got to start with the uh, elephant in the room. Why are we up so early? We're up so early because after this, I got to go to work and uh, do some experiments. <laughs> I think um, so. It's I, I'm not sure what time zone you're in. I'm get, well, so I guess you're you're probably eight o'clock right now. Yeah, it's eight o'clock. Yeah, so seven for me. I've done different like different time zones. I've I've done episodes with people like in I'll say Paris, but somewhere in France near Paris. Um, I haven't done one quite this early yet, so I just had to <laughs> give you a hard time a little bit. Yeah, no, well, thanks for getting up early. <laughs> Drinking coffee to get the day started? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. It's coffee number two right now. <laughs> okay. So I've got this whole, um, so, you know, you told me you uh, saw a couple of the episodes that Joe sent over to you and we kind of contacted you. I have this whole uh, other show where I do just about running because that's kind of my background. Mm-hmm. And one of my most popular videos is like, should you drink coffee in the morning before going to go run? <laughs> so it's always, it always makes it like anytime somebody's drinking coffee and say, no, you're an athlete. I'm like, are you headed to work or do you still need to train after the coffee? Mm. I mean, I would always have coffee before playing. <laughs> Okay. Uh, field hockey, you know, different sport than running, obviously, but uh, it was, yeah, early morning training, absolutely would have coffee. Afternoon training, probably would have coffee. Evening training, definitely would have coffee. Is that like an explicit, I know the caffeine's going to like pet me up, or is it like, how does that have it develop? Uh, I think sometimes it's, sometimes like, especially if we're in bank. Vancouver and I'm like I was often balancing my time between doing experiments in the lab and then heading into or heading to the field to do training. Mm-hmm. If it's a long day, I know I need a little pick me up. Mm-hmm. I just get tired otherwise. And then sometimes it's just as nice. It's part of the ritual. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of you feel okay, I've had my coffee, I'm ready to go. So um what here's the thing, and I'm just gonna give you a hard time. So you're Canadian, but you play field hockey. I think the kind of obvious question, I don't know if anybody else has asked you, I'm sure growing up you got asked, why do you play field hockey instead of, I'll say, real hockey, quote unquote? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's in Canada, yeah, definitely the wrong hockey. Um, <laughs> um, so I played a little bit of ice hockey growing up um, as well. It's such a fun sport, but uh, I was never very good at it. And also I'm much too small to be an ice hockey player. Okay get killed out there so um but field hockey it's uh 
a niche sport in Canada, but it's a really big sport worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, the number that field hockey people always throw at me, which I think they had one poll they liked and just kept with it, is that it's the second most popular sport in the world by participation for team okay. sports. So it's got huge numbers of people who play it uh, worldwide, but in North America, it is quite uh, uh, small. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've known, um, I think the first time I met somebody who played field hockey was this uh, girl I knew in high school, not from my school. She went to a, like a private school. And I was like, you what, what would now? Just, it's just one of those things where it's like, especially, you know, like um, Canadian, obviously centered on ice hockey, American sports, baseball, football, um, maybe basketball. And then everything else starts like taper off from there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so I got into it because it's actually, it's got a lot of similarities to soccer. Okay. Um, and so I got into it when I was a kid because, um, in the junior seasons, how they worked out field hockey was in the off season for soccer. And they had a stretch where they're advertising it to soccer players. Like, Oh, you finish soccer. Now come play something that's similar. You run around and it's kind of, it's obviously a stick and a ball rather than kicking with your feet, but um, similar positions, similar running and thought processes. So and the so- pitch is like, you're, this is off season for soccer, so like stay in shape, do something, yeah. come out for this. Yeah, and so I was like a hyperactive kid, and at that point, my other option was baseball. And baseball, you don't run as much. And so it's a lot more just kind of standing around and that just, I, I would get antsy. And so then I went and played field hockey and, oh, I can run all day and it's great. Um, so I started as a kid and then it's just like a really kind of fast, skilled, fun sport and just got more and more into it. Is there, um, is there like cooperation with schools at school teams or is it completely a club sport? It's on, in, in, um, there's, on the girls' side, there is some school stuff. And on the men's side, growing up, um, it's almost all club. Um, okay. there's, there's one private school that has teams, but they play in the club league. Okay. Okay. This is, you already kind of answered the how you got into it, because I was just like, again, everybody comes to it from a different place. Sometimes it's like, well, my, you know, my dad or my mom played, whatever, so then I, they introduced me to it. Or, you know, I, like I came to running because I tried soccer as a kid. And I, I loved playing midfield because I just got to run up and down the field over and over and over and kind of took that like enthusiasm and said, why don't I just run? <laughs> so it's always interesting for me, like how people get into, you know, whatever it is they're doing. So, so how do you keep it up from, so, so you start when you were like five or when were you, when did you start? I was probably seven or eight when I started. Okay. So how does that progression look from seven or eight all the way through, I'll say, mid to late twenties when you're, you know, at the Olympics? Yeah. Um, so there's like there's a junior league that goes all the way through until um, mm-hmm. eighteen, and then I played at university, um, so University of British Columbia. Okay. And then and that there the university plays in the club league in Vancouver. Um. And the national team is based in Vancouver. And so there's a lot of guys who were in the national program who are at UBC um, and then also in that club league. And so for me, I was a late bloomer. So at 18, I wasn't on any track to go anywhere. Right. Um, 
but I went to university and I was playing with all the guys who were there and that helped me improve a lot. Um, and then it's like, and then um, there's tryouts and you start going and don't get a look. And then a bit later you get something of a look and then a half opportunity and stuff starts to happen. Okay. So is there's, is there every, almost every even sport, but just like different countries, their pipelines for like Olympic development always differ. So is there like, um, like a triathlon now, there's a couple different pipelines for Olympic athletes. Uh, one of them being there's a program to recruit college athletes who ran or swam and try to make them into triathletes. Yeah. With field hockey, or are there like explicit, hey, come try out for the national team kind of like games or matches? They have. So, yeah, they, they have. Um... They used to, at least they used to, that every year they'd be like an open camp. Okay. So it'd be once a year or once every two years. It'd be a camp where anyone could like email the coach, say, hey, I want to come. Um, and you'd come and you'd have like a three, four day camp and they less. And um, it's field hockey in Canada is such a small community. Okay. Like people are showing up who've never seen before. Um, it's, there's only a few thousand people who play. So you kind of know everyone already. Okay, um, that's the chance to kind of come and be in the same setting and kind of people to try and show what they can do. Okay, okay. So then you're you're already over in the area basically. Uh, so it's not like not like making like a cross country flight to get there. Mm-hmm. So it's a little convenient for you just to be like, hey, I'm definitely going to show up even if you know even if I, I'm not necessarily qualified, quote unquote, to be there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's the, the hard thing uh, with being a big country is for people not from Vancouver, it's much harder. Yeah. So, like, friends from Ontario who are on the, who made the team, you have to make a much bigger first step. Yeah. I'm going to fly from Toronto to Vancouver and try out and see how it goes. What I know from the, like, few Canadian friends I have is that, like, trans-Canadian flights are kind of a pain and somewhat pricey. <laughs> Yeah, they're not cheap. So that's why that's what I was thinking about when I said that with you being already in the neighborhood. I'm like, all right, we already got that out of the way. We don't have to deal with like the pain yeah. of doing that. Yeah, no, and then and then like in terms of pipelines, field hockey for men in Canada is kind of an uh, like a unique one or unusual one because um, most sports you kind of have like this big pyramid, so you want to have like so many people as kids. And then, like, a lot more as, like, competitive youth and then as men. And then, finally, at the very top of this wide pyramid, you have your elite mm-hmm. athletes who are going to form your national team. And for men in Canada, rather than a big pyramid, it's more like a, a very narrow column. So we don't have, like, the player pool that other countries do. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, we will play games against a team like India where there's millions of people who play in the country mm-hmm. and you know, they could form five national teams. That would all be quite good. Right. And we have, you know, maybe 3000 men in the whole country who are registered to play and about 30 in our like elite player pool. Okay. Come together. And, but then it's, um, it's kind of speaks to the d- different ways you can get there. Cause despite having 
such a small pool, we can still be, you know, at and around 10 in the world and compete mm-hmm. like India. Well, see, that, as I watch, and I, I admit I did not watch field hockey in this last Olympics. I actually didn't watch much of anything um, besides besides the triathlon, um, or I knew some of the people in it. Um, it. It always kind of amazes me how you get, and Canada is not a small country by any any measure um but in terms of you know depth of like the field hockey team like you said it's not it's not like you've got a hundred thousand kids out for the sport and then you're whittling it down from there so it always kind of amazes me how you get uh, i'll say small nations or small pools of talent from different countries that somehow still develop to the point where they're competitive enough to be competitive on the world stage it's just this, and I always kind of wonder, like, how does that happen? Is it simply a matter of if you have, I'll say, I'll say like a, a critical mass kind of number. Say, if you only had fifty people, it would be very hard to develop a team of thirty. But once you reach a mass of a thousand, then somehow you'll get your thirty that you need. I don't know if it's a matter of that or just a matter of. Um, determination and dreams and like the human spirit, like figuring out how to be better. Yeah, I, I think it's both of those play into it. And then I think um, in Canadian field hockey leagues, we've always been very lucky with having like a core group of veterans or a core group of very good people who play for a long time. And then that kind of just drives everyone else. So you got to have like the guys who've been, pl- you know, who are at at an elite level and they'll give a lot of time in and then you know for when i came into the team as a young guy um i would see all these veteran players and see what they're doing and learn from them and that despite not having tons of numbers can kind of pull us up yeah well it's like it's the whole idea that like um in this case it's sports but um you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with so if you're spending your time with you know, elite level players, like some of that's at least going to rub off on you, if not a little more. Yeah. So is that, so where are you now, given that you're, I mean, here's 2020. Are you, are you still competing? Are you still, you know, after another spot this year? You know, so for me, the, this part of my life ended after the Olympics. So okay. uh, I retired in 2016. Um, and the, I'm still, there's still a lot of good friends on the team. And so I'm still, like, you can probably hear it as I talk about it. I'm still, uh, in some ways, I almost feel like I'm still on the team, even though it's been a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they've uh, gone on to do very well without me, which is great. Um, so they just recently qualified for the Tokyo Olympics. Okay. Um, so there's only 12 countries that go to the Olympics for field hockey. So it's always okay. always a tough, a tough qualification run, but they're had a great two-game series against Ireland to qualify. Um, and so they're now in kind of that prep phase of building for the Olympics. So is is qualification like a, almost like a World Cup-style tournament where you've got like bracketed, bracketed groups and then you have to win out in your group? Or, or how is that set up? It, it changes every time. Um, they keep tweaking it. This this last one, uh, some, they're like a different bunch of different routes that you could qualify through like winning the pan america games for instance okay um and then for everyone who didn't qualify through that they then paired them and did two game series and the winner of the two games would go okay 
So I think since since you retired, and this is always, I've confronted confronted this recently myself, even though I'm still competing. Um, I always want to talk to especially um, elite athletes. Uh, you know, did you have any difficulty transitioning from like this is who I am? I'm you know Olympic field hockey player to like now I'm just I, I say that in with love just a researcher um yeah i mean it was it, it uh i think for me it actually wasn't as bad as some stories that i've heard like it's never easy but it helped that um i was still very busy when i retired mm-hmm. um and so i so my i played on the national team from 2009 till the end of 2016 um, and the first few years I was a young kid coming in, I didn't, I've made some tours, maybe not others. The last four years there, I was, I was on every team essentially. Um, and that was all during my PhD. Uh, and so kind of 2012 through 2016, I was very, very stretched. Um, cause I'd be out of the country for about three months of the year. And then when I was in town training a lot and still trying to do all my studies, and so I was like, by the, by the time I retired, I was, you know, it was amazing. Best four years of my life in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But I was just like, oh, <laughs> so done. Um, and so then after I stepped away, then I could, you know, buckle down and finish my PhD um, and kind of move on with other parts of my life. And so I didn't have time to kind of self-reflect too much and be like, oh, what, who am I now? All the rest of it. I was just, you know. Oh, all these things I've been haven't been able to do now. I now I can. I kind of think about that sometimes in terms of like identity shift. Like, so I have a couple of businesses, and sometimes I think about it'd be nice to grow them to the point where you could sell them. And then I think about the aftermath of like you spend all this time doing this thing, and then like you ship it off, be it in retirement or selling something or whatever, whatever it is. And I think about well. Before I do that, let's have a backup plan. Like let's let's get started on something else before we end it, so that there's not this giant vacuum left when you you know transition out of that stage of your life. Yeah, and it's tough because like it, I mean, for me, like it it was so much of my focus was on on the sport, and it's you know you're you're constantly thinking about it, you're training, you're building towards specific tournaments and making different teams and all the rest of it. And um, you kind of just lose like a big driving force in your life. You're like, oh, huh. this, is, this is me without that. And trying to figure out what, what that means. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can only see like chest up, but I'm assuming you're not like super fat now. So it seems like you've done okay without grueling hours of training. Yeah. Um, so... It was so, yeah. I've done okay. I, I'm still playing hockey um, now, more socially than competitive. Okay. Um, there is like in Vancouver. There's obviously a big community there that I'm very connected to. And then, the last year, just past one year now, I've been in Boston, uh, which is where I've moved my postdoctoral research. Um, and there is a, a smaller but a, a good community here for hockey. So, playing socially, kind of keeping keeping active. Um, but I've just recently gone back to the gym. Okay. Which, uh, when I played, the gym was always an 
ends to a mean. I wasn't really a gym guy, but I did it because uh, it helped with mm-hmm. hockey. And so when I retired, that was when I just like f- completely cut out. <laughs> and I was like, no more gym. And then, yeah. you know, three and a half years on, I was like, huh, I kind of missed the gym. Mm-hmm. So this last month, I've been working out again. It's it's different. It's like, you know, we have you have your main sport, and then yeah, you, like you said, you you go to the gym and you do box jumps or squats or you know whatever it is you need to do in the gym because you're like, all right, this is going to make me faster, more agile. I'm going to be a better player or a better athlete. But then it. I find now doing it some days because <laughs> often for me, it's like I've just got done with a hard hour of swimming and now I have to do my weight stuff. I find with the days I'm not exhausted, it's almost like a personal meditation because it's a different kind of difficult than, mm-hmm. you know, going out and playing or, or in my case, um, going running or cycling or swimming. And, and it kind of gives me almost like a, an easy moment with myself, with my own mind where it's like, obviously it's tough and it hurts, but it doesn't take the, quite the same kind of focus. I at least imagine like field hockey does where you have to pay attention to everything in your peripherals and where you know, the movement, all the players and the ball and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It is nice. And, um, but it, it's, it's fun, but it's also, I'm also like, I've been enjoying being back in it. But without that extra purpose of like, why am I doing this? Sometimes I'm a bit lost. I'm a bit like, okay, I'm going to go lift some weights. And like, I don't have a, a, a reason other than that for why I'm doing it. But uh, yeah, but, but it's nice to be back in there. Yeah, I think the why is, like, is something to struggle with, definitely. Where it's like, for, you know, for you... It, the why for a long time could be, I want to be on the Olympic team. Like that's a pretty big why it's a pretty big motivator. And then without that, it's like, well, I know I should stay in shape, but I kind of feel like, at least for me, the, the human nature, like the slothfulness catches up with you. We are like, well, I really have to do this. It's just, if I want to do this and then what I really want is to take a nap. So, do I go to the gym or do I do I take a nap? But then, you know, when you go, like, you feel better after having been there. But it's like getting over that hurdle since you don't have that big why anymore. Yeah. Yeah, so. I think what it's come, what I've realized recently is that it's been long enough that even playing socially, I'm starting to notice the, the lack of strength in when I play hockey. Mm. And so I've come to the, ter- I've come to terms with the fact that over time, Already now and in the future, I won't be able to do what I remember being able to do. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, I can just do that. Oh, no, I can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. But I figure if I can just do a little bit of gym work, so I'm a bit stronger, that I can just slow that decline a little bit. Right. And that, see, that's, <laughs> we're, of, we're of similar age. Um, I think you're a year older than me, but that's especially, it's especially prevalent as an endurance athlete, like your peak, I'm right in that kind of area where you're supposed to peak. But at the same time, I'm already past kind of that really high power phase in your early 20s. And kind of looking forward the next however many decades, it's just like, this is just a battle 
against the decline in age. <laughs> like you get past the point of being like, all right, I'm going to be the best I w- I've ever been. It's just like, I just don't want to be worse than I have to be, which isn't quite the same motivation. Yeah. 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 I, I joke about it with the guys I play with now. I'm like, Oh, you know what today? The best I'll, is the, um, like, it only goes down from today. <laughs> Because next year I'll be worse, and the year after I'll be worse again. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, so for you, are you um, you're you transitioned from running to triathlons? Yeah, so I um, I ran in college, and then I transitioned trying to become a professional triathlete. So I spent about eight years doing that, and I kind of gave up the ghost after um, a crash in a race where I probably would have qualified. Um, that, that shattered my collarbone. I had a surgery. I was out for several months and, um, I was just broken mentally. I'd worked, worked my body and my mind so hard for so long, um, that I, I just couldn't keep up with it anymore. And like, it would have been, I would have needed such a large force of will after that event to try to get back to it. Cause I mean, I was spending, you know, running the two businesses and then also spending like 17, 18 hours a week training. Sunday would be my big day where I go out for a bike ride for five hours and then go run for a half hour afterwards. So it's a six hour block. And it just, it just got to be too, too much. And, and to be fair, I always knew that it was a long shot for me to do it. Um, but it was something that I wanted to do. So I, yeah. you know, persisted. And then it was a matter of, okay, well, like, it didn't quite happen. It was, like, you're, like, right on the cusp, but it's not a matter of, like, I'm friends with people that are now pros or have qualified and decided not to become pros. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just, I've kind of, I want to say, um, come to the, not come to the realization, but um, just, I'm losing my turn, turn of phrase here, but basically um, I know that like my genetic potential is not high enough to make it easily an attainable task. So it's like, yes, I probably could make it happen, but at what cost? Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of transition I've been dealing with for the last, hmm, I think 18 months now. So I think about the timeline. It seems like it's been longer than it has. Um, but so it's like, I'm still, still doing triathlons, still trying to stay in shape and do all that stuff, but definitely struggling with the, like, well, now why am I doing that? Like, why am I waking up at 6am to go to the pool and beat myself up? Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. And it's not quite the same as, uh, you know, retiring from an Olympic team. Um, but some similarities in terms of like giving up that identity a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a big, um, yeah, very similar thought process on my end. Um, it's, yeah, like when it's the, for me, it was like hockey, like there's, there's lots of really good highs. Like you play these tournaments all over the world and like just these amazing games, but the whole process is, is it, it can be such a grind. Like, you know, it's a lot of, you're training in Vancouver where it's like just above freezing and raining and windy and you're doing this day after day after day. Um, 
and going through that, you have to have kind of that that fire or that love for it. And I had that through my career, but then the but then you know also getting pulled other ways. Then after 2016, I was like, I don't think I have that anymore. I don't think mm-hmm. I have in me to be like to re-enter that grind and to keep going. Um, yeah, motivation is always seems like this. Um, I don't know, like fleeting mystery. And I, I've always feel like I've had it in abundance. And then I've always wondered why other people around me didn't have it. Cause it's like, it didn't seem like I had anything particularly special, but then I also have noticed over time, like that motivation wane where it's like, you know, part of the motivation was fueled by my desire to be a pro. Well, that's not really a factor anymore. So then, you know, some of that fires died down. And I've had to kind of like refocus and think about what do I have fun doing? Yeah. You know, instead of just grinding, like, am I having fun when I get up at the, you know, go to the pool at 6 a.m.? Um, and deciding I'm doing this because I want to, not because I'm trying to attain something, but because I enjoy it. And that seems to be from like everybody I've talked to on the podcast that from, you know, amateurs to pros to those people that could be pros and decide not to be uh, fun seems to be the like underlying current of why people continue long term. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. And that's, that's exactly right. I think, Um, at least for me, it's, it's, I always told myself like the, the, if you're like for field hockey, for me, if I was doing it just to try and go to the Olympics, um, it's it's there's no way you survive there's no way you there's no way you do it but there's also no way that you enjoy like that you you like your life at the end of that four years of, mm-hmm. of it you have to you even when it some days it does kind of suck there's still some part of me that just loved those early morning trainings in the middle of winter mm-hmm. um being with the guys and all the rest of it yeah so, but before we move on to your research, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the Olympics experience. So, I mean, it's a long flight from Canada to Brazil. I have a friend who does that because he lives in Canada, is from Brazil. So, I know it takes a little bit of time to get down there. Um, take me through, you're getting on the plane, um, and then kind of the, I guess, a bridge timeline from leaving Canada to, you know, you're on the field. Yeah, no, it was the Olympics. It, it, it was. Um, I, I say this, and it sound. I think it sounds silly, but it's. It captures kind of like you know that it's a big, a big event. Like it's bigger than anything else you've done. Um, and you're like, okay, I've prepared myself. I know it's going to be big, and then you, then you go, and it's just so much. Like to live that is so different than to know it going in, and so you, I was pretty blown away by just how much bigger an event it was. Um, but yeah, so like the flight is, it's very long. Um, it'd been a long buildup. Like the team was announced probably like three, four weeks before the Olympics. So you've got confirmation we're going. Um, we had like a test series against the United States in Vancouver, um, played some games, all these different send off things. The Canadian Olympic committee did this whole like video around us. Um, Mm that's you know you're just prepping 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 when when is this when is this actually going to happen um and then we board the flight and you know it's we go from vancouver to toronto and then toronto to 
Rio, which is some like sixteen hour. Yeah, trip. like it's it's, it's not, long. Uh, you're pretty exhausted, but then you arrive and like they've got everyone's everyone's decked out and like their Olympic stuff, and you know it's it's all very exciting. And then you realize that a lot of the Olympics, it like the logistics of the Olympics, is a lot of hurry up and wait. Mm. And like that's every trip, but like much the Olympics on another scale of hurry up and wait. <laughs> so then you know you're around the airport, you're waiting for the bus. Um, but then uh, there's like all these things that like you do and and when you thought about for so many years, and then when you do them, you're like, oh, this is this is you know this is actually happening. Like, <laughs> um, and so you come into the Olympic Village and you start looking around and you see all the other athletes, mm-hmm. um, all these people who are just like unbelievable at whatever sport it is that they do um yeah and then you know and, and then we kind of have to buckle down again and kind of get get our we're, we were there like a week or two before the game started and you know it's a big tournament that we're playing very good teams and so then it's okay we kind of enjoyed that moment and so now it's back tr- back to work mm-hmm. um and then you kind of get into uh training and prepping um and then kind of my the purest like olympic moment for me was the opening ceremonies um it was because like for us for field hockey we weren't really supposed to qualify that 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 cycle mm-hmm. um like we hadn't qualified for london and our funding was pretty much all was like a lot of it was cut and so mm-hmm. we're just like on a bare bones budget we went to this qualifying tournament that like um you know, we had some confidence, but we weren't supposed to qualify from, and we did. And so then it was like you're walking in, you walk into the Olympic Stadium, the whole crowd is cheering. My parents are somewhere up in the stands, mm-hmm. um, and you're surrounded by you know fifteen of like fifteen close friends who you've kind of gone on this journey with. So that was um, this moment. Like, I I really this really has happened. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, and then you know, and then then the hockey happened, and we we didn't do as well as we wanted. So it's kind of it's interesting because like, it, on many levels, it's such an unbelievable experience. Something I'll, you know, hold with me the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. But we didn't do as well as we wanted. Like we went in there, and we thought we could win some games and upset some teams. And at the end of the day, we came eleventh out of twelve, mm-hmm. which is where we were ranked going in. But we kind of, it felt like a missed opportunity. So there's going to be that little, a little bit of a shoulda, woulda, coulda, like, you know, close moments and yeah. all the rest of it. But um, but then after that was done, um, we, our tournament finished after the group stages. And so we ha- then had like a week and a half left where we were, we went from being like, when you're in tournament mode, every moment is scheduled pretty much. Mm-hmm. Like your off days, you have so much scheduled around meetings and, um, you know, activation and all the rest of it. And then we finish and we went for a week and a half in the Olympics in the village, but absolutely no schedule. Just do whatever you want, mm-hmm. which was that, which is it was disappointing to not still be playing. But right. It was also really fun because we could just we could get with our athlete passes. We could pretty much get into every event. Uh-huh. Um, we weren't that supposed to, but they'd mostly let you in. 
Yeah. So, you know, you just take the the shuttles and you go, okay, say we're going to go to canoe kayak and you just kind of walk in the athlete's entrance and hang out and watch all the athletes, you know, cheer on the other Canadians. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so that's a bit disjointed, but that was kind of my Olympic experience. That's what I was kind of wondering about. Where it's like, I mean, you went and, you know, even if it doesn't matter, if, say this obviously is, uh, an exaggeration, but there's 12 teams and say you're ranked 20th, like you're still like, like we're going to, we're going to go try to win. Like you're not going to be like, I want to place last. Like that's not the, you know, in yeah. vision in your head. So it's like, I, I just wondered how that, how that mentality goes it was like, you're out and you're like, well, that's, that's it. But we're here. So there's so like, there's so many things to experience. And just like, like you said, dealing with that disjointed nature of like, we wish we were still doing it, but we could also do all these other incredible things at the, at the same time. So, yeah. did you? Did you? Uh, like I said, I just didn't. I just didn't pay enough attention to the Olympics as I should have. Um, did you get to cheer any Canadians on to victory? The any of the other stuff that you watched? Yeah, I mean, we. I went and watched the, not quite to victory, but to a medal. Um, okay. We saw the four by one hundred, uh, okay. relay, uh, the final for the men, mm-hmm. and so that uh, Canadian got bronze in that, um, and so that was that was awesome. Like those those athletes are just incredible. Yeah, those guys are. I'll see. I'll assume it's the men's team. I I yeah. didn't say, but um, they're that relay is ridiculous. The the the. All, the four by one, the four by two, and and the four by four, all just like, how are you running that fast? And especially the four by one guys, they're enormous. Yeah. <laughs> so that this like the stature of the hundred meter guys, always it surprises me a little bit, I guess. But like at the same time, I'm like, you need a ton of power. They're almost like um, like muscle cars. Where yeah. They're just like huge and beefy. They can only do a short little sprint, but they're going to like really haul down the track the whole way. Um, so tell me a little bit about your research. I read, um, I think in a different interview you'd done a couple of years ago, um, part of the, one of the things you liked about your research, which is, was its flexibility to allow you to compete. Um, so I guess before you tell me about your research, I have to ask, um, if the perfect project had come along that was not flexible, would you have passed on it? So I think when I was making that sort of choice, I was entirely driven by hockey because okay. I was playing hockey before I started my, my grad school. Mm. And so I, it kind of like the, the lab that I wanted to join was the one that I did uh, on like scientific basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was, I, I was, I didn't, wasn't really much of a um, decision for me. It was like, yes, this is who I want to join. Okay. And they tend to be flexible. But I think even before I started looking at labs, I did kind of like, okay, what sort of research are they doing? What sort of model system are we working with? How easy is it to pick up and put down as travel demands? Mm-hmm. Um, so when I made the decision, I think the answer would have been no, in that I wouldn't have joined a lab where I couldn't have done it. <laughs> Uh huh. Um, and actually, no. To be honest, all through when I was playing, the answer still would have been I would have kept playing and would have not joined the perfect project. 
Yeah. And I've retired did probably a different answer. <laughs> you know, priorities in life have changed. Right. Uh, but, you know, I think for me to, to, it was important for me to do both. And, um, and to, uh, it was important to find a place where, like both my, my field hockey coach that she very accommodating, um, as was needed. Like he was very understanding about, um, about me ha having uh, this academic side. And then my PhD supervisor, just incredible. She gave me so much leeway and so much support um, in my pursuits. And so I think it was, it, I got very lucky and I think I wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it sounds like you're, like I said, I'll say fortunate. I, I hate using lucky because I feel like sometimes it, it it belies the fact that, you know, who you are draws you to certain opportunities and then you take them. I guess in a sense that's luck, but I feel like there there's probably some sort of underlying drive to figure out how to make it happen when it's something that you want. But I, I, it definitely sounds like you're fortunate that you met people that were accommodating and not you know because i know i know academics that are like almost anti-sport or outright anti-sport like they don't want student athletes involved because they like you're just you're not going to be serious enough about you know the research or whatever we're doing here in the lab and it's like i i kind of get it because it's like you want same thing with the coach coach wants you that all-in mentality yeah you know don't was another one your divided attention but it's like it it um, cuts short kind of the the potential for who somebody is, you know, like that you are in you are in both worlds. I mean, that's you're the kind of person I talk to that lives in both worlds. And yes, the kind of person that you are is a little more rare. Not everybody lives in both niches, especially at such a high level. But it's like, why would you try to stunt somebody's potential to be the best human they could be just because of your bias you know yeah so but so tell me about your your phd research and what kind of work forward from there yeah so i mean i don't know your background in biology is but not not a lot but I'll, i explain like i'm five and i'll probably be able to follow along yeah so big picture what am i what was i studying i was studying something called gene activation um, so you've probably heard about genes before, right? Um, they're in your DNA. And so um, something that's helpful to think about, like why would you care which genes are turned on or off? Um, so every cell in your body contains the same copy of your DNA. And it's a genetic blueprint and it tells every cell in your body how to be a cell. Um, so a brain cell is, is using that genetic code to be a brain cell. Um, as is a skin cell or a heart cell or a muscle cell. Mm -hmm. The fact that you've got all these different cells from the same blueprint tells you they're using that blueprint differently. Mm -hmm. um, and so just in some ways, just as important as what your DNA is, how your DNA is being used in all the different cells is what makes you you. Okay. Um, an analogy for that is like a cookbook. So uh, if you think of the joy of cooking, it's got all these different recipes. And from that same cookbook, you can make many different meals. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and just because you have the cookbook doesn't mean you're always gonna make 
every recipe in it. Mm -hmm. um, you'll make some on someday and some on some others. And cells are like that. They're not going to use every, every gene all the time. They're going to use specific genes to make specific um, parts of cells. Mm -hmm. um, so something like insulin um, is a gene that's in every cell in your body, but it's only expressed in the pancreas. Okay. Um, and so how, how do cells control which genes are on, which genes are off? Um, how do the mechanisms work is what I study. Okay. Um, and in my PhD, I studied this in yeast. So baker's yeast, the same, essentially the same yeast you use to make bread. Mm -hmm. um, there's some aspects of how this process of turning a gene on that's the same, fundamentally the same in yeast as it is in humans or in any other eukaryotic cell. Mm. And that's what I studied. And I studied um, the how the physical packaging of DNA changes when it's expressed or not. Okay. Um, and so basically what, we, what um, to some degree we can observe um, is that when a gene is on, the region of the genome that it is becomes more open and accessible. And when a gene is off, um, it becomes more closed and compact. Okay. And I studied one chemical modification that's associated with that. Okay. So, and we'll, we'll talk about Cheryl here in a second, but um, so are you... I guess I'll say Cheryl talked about switching models and you're talking about working on yeast. Do you basically commit to a model and say, I'm only going to work in that model for all of my research or, or does, are you able to switch models later on when you go to a different project or like, you know, how do you take, I'll say, if, uh, I'll say a theory, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean theory explicitly, but how do you take that idea forward when you're switching from, you know, one model to another. Yeah, and so different um, different scientists will probably give you different answers. Okay. Uh, and there's different, and probably all those answers are right, but just, you know, different people have different ways of doing yeah. that. Um, and so for me, I think I'm a little bit model agnostic. Okay. Um, and more question driven. And so like for a particular scientific question, um, different models will be better suited. Mm -hmm. um, and so for what I was studying in my PhD, uh, yeast were actually a great model for it. Um, and now in my postdoc, I'm studying uh, a couple different things, but like one thing I'm, I've studied a little bit is how does one cell change into another type of cell, mm -hmm. um, which happens during like uh, uh, development. Right. So from from the embryo onwards, like you have many cells right. starting from just one cell. Um, and so yeast are a terrible model for that because they don't really do cell type changes. Mm -hmm. um, they're a unicellular organism. And so now in my postdoc, I'm actually working with mouse cells. Okay. Um, and so I've switched because the questions I'm asking are different. Okay. Um, and uh, I, and, uh, the ability to switch between models to model, it's not like, it's not that it's super easy, but it's also not that hard either. Mm -hmm. um, 
especially for the well-established models. There's so many, so many people who know how to work with them and you can learn from. Uh, and so, so, I'm, so now in my career, I've made one switch. So I've gone mm -hmm. east to mouse cells. And I think depending on what questions I'm asking, I might switch again. Mm -hmm. um, and my hope is that the more often you switch, the easier it is to do. OK. But check, check back in, in with me, and we'll see. <laughs> OK. So I, I think Cheryl talked about, she, so um, for anybody listening or watching on YouTube, uh, Cheryl Keller Capone, episode 39. She's actually the one who said I need to talk to Ben, and that's how we got in touch with him. Um, so she, I think, mentioned working with flies originally and then switching to a mouse model, and I'm not sure what she's doing now. But b between the two of you, that kind of conjures up this question in my head about, um, so thinking about the yeast, simple model for the particular kind of research you're doing, and now you need a different model because it doesn't fit that um, structure anymore. The question I have is, is there a known chain or known relationship between models all the way up to like using humans as a model in terms of saying, if we find this out about yeast, then we can assume it is probably true about X, Y, and Z model. Yeah, I mean, we can, there's some things, yeah, so there is never an exact answer, mm -hmm. um, but there's certain, like, at this point, we know certain process processes are conserved, so we go, oh, this pr particular process happens, largely speaking, the same in yeast as it does in mouse, as it does in humans. Okay. And we go, okay, so we discover something in yeast, we haven't, we don't, we can't say that's how it works in humans, but it's a pretty good guess that it would. Right. Um, and so then often what will happen, will someone will find something in yeast, because um, yeast are much easier to work with. You can do science a lot faster in them. Right. And then someone will come along later in flies or mouse or human cells and kind of show this and then find out if it's the same thing or if it's slightly different. Mm -hmm. um, and so as long as like the process is conserved or like the key genes are conserved, there often is a link. Um, and sometimes what will, what, the other thing that can, before you get to humans, you might say, oh, we see that working this way in yeast, we see the same thing in flies and the same thing in mice. Mm -hmm. Is you, okay, this is probably a pretty general thing. Um, it's conserved across a like pretty broad swathe of organisms. Um, humans might still be different, like humans might have diverged, but um, it's a good idea, it's a good guess this is a fairly general mechanism. Right. I just think the reason I ask that is I think about, I'll say the general population, and mm -hmm. I, I still consider myself a layman in most fields, which is why it's fun to talk to people like you. Um, but I think sometimes people have a hard time when they say, say, what whatever you're studying, say for whatever reason, um, by the scientific community. Uh, which really is not the scientific community at large, but the people that would understand your research decide this is a breakthrough and then somehow it ends up in like like the new york times or something and then people read it and they go it's yeast what does what does that have to do with me yeah you yeah. know so that's why i always wonder like how do we how do we communicate the applicability between like what you guys are doing and then how it affects people or how it could affect people and i know there's not always a straight 
this is how it could affect you. It's okay. We don't know yet, but then it might combine with something later on. And now we know, you know, how it might affect you. Yeah. So a, a nice example of that. So in the late eighties, early nineties, this is before a lot of the modern techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of biology was discovered in yeast by doing genetic screens. Okay. And you'd have some sort of phenotype and you'd be able to pull out genes that affected that phenotype. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they do, and the gene names would take on um, the, 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 the type of screen that it was. Okay. So for instance, there's a whole bunch of genes that are SNF and then a number. And that's because that stands for sucrose non-fermenting. Okay. Um, so a bunch of those genes were discovered in yeast in late 80s, early 90s. Later, they went on to find out that those regulate how DNA is packaged um, and how something called chromatin is assembled. And skip forward a, a bit, a few more years to the 2000s, and we find out that, that the, some of the SNF genes are conserved through to humans. Mm-hmm. Um, so a bunch of genes that are, that are named sucrose non-fermenting um, or a class of genes that are called sucrose non-fermenting in humans and are commonly mutated in cancers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the basis for what we know about them is actually stemming from the yeast work done in the 80s and 90s. Okay. And so that for like for your research dollar, like it's very, very cheap to do that sort of discovery work in yeast. Um, it would cost, you know, orders of magnitude more to do that in something like human cells. Right. Um, and so we discovered all this biology, and then we find out that that's then actually what's informing us about how things are going wrong in cancer and how we can try and hopefully come up with um, new therapeutics. Yeah. It's kind of nice to see that, and I'm glad you had the example, too. Just Like I said, it's just a matter of, like, I, I feel like, well, I live, I live in the Midwest, so I don't know how, how much you know about, I guess, has culture changes throughout the, 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 the swath of the United States. I will be frank about being um, uh, not very literate in like Canadian culture and politics as it changes across um, the, the country, aside from that um, there's the separatists in Quebec. That's about all I know about. Um, but anyway, so I live in a fairly conservative and kind of religious part of the country that almost like uh, demonize the scientists at, at times and it's like like they're doing all this uh, I'll, I'll say witchcraft I'm obviously being facetious but it's like they're doing these mysterious experiments and what what is it why are they wasting money and all these kinds of things and it's like look we're, we're trying to figure out things that help people to like kind of advance human knowledge so it it's I don't know I just I just am trying to share my appreciation for both the work you're doing and for giving a good example of like how that kind of progresses into something that matters farther down the line. Um, so Cheryl said, I need to talk to you. Where did, how does she know to you? How do you know her? How does that happen? Yeah. Uh, so Cheryl and I have actually never met in person. Okay. Um, but there is a rich scientific community on Twitter. Okay. Um, and so we've just messaged a bunch on, on Twitter. Um, and so kind of some shared interests and um, scientists are very, like, scientists on Twitter seem to be extremely helpful and supportive of each other. 
And so there's lots of like scary transitions that like like the PhD to postdoc transition for me is one of those scary transitions I went through. Yeah. And I got a lot of help and advice from people I've never met via Twitter, um, which, you know, I'm not just getting advice from strangers on the internet, but I am a bit getting advice from strangers on the internet. Um, but so, I mean, so Cheryl and I, like, cause we both are scientists, we both have um, interest in sports and um, she's got her background as a runner. And so we've connected on that a few times. Yeah. Well, it's like you're both doing like, I'll say gene type research. Obviously, you're not doing the same thing, but it's not it's not like a, it's not like you're studying astrophysics and she's studying genes or anything like there's a much closer link between your fields. Yeah. And like a lot of the people like I'll meet someone on like I'll interact with someone on Twitter and then we'll go to the same conference and we'll have a beer and, you know, then then we're close friends to that point. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is just a before before we close out right out of time i just it, it's always interesting to me how like the internet kind of changes how our culture interacts now or it's like say we didn't have the internet you didn't have twitter you didn't meet those people but you still went to the conference you wouldn't necessarily have interacted with them otherwise you know yeah so um, before we run out of time, the, so this is the second year I've been doing the show. I like to ask everybody the same question just because the answer will vary. This year I'm asking people, um, a kind of esoteric question and asking, what do you think the purpose of sport is? Oh, that's an interesting question. That could go <laughs> many different ways. Um, I'm not, uh, I don't, I don't know that I have a clean answer for that. I think I'll answer, well, I'll answer what is the purpose of sport for me? Um, and so for me, it's, it's really about the enjoyment. Like I just, I get this, this joy from playing sport. Uh, for me, mostly from playing hockey. Um, this, you know, it's all a bunch of different things, but at the end of the day, I just, I just makes me happy. Um, mm -hmm. Enjoy it. I think there's lots of other benefits that come after them, like health and fitness and all the rest of it. But really for me, it's just about having fun, um, enjoying life. Great answer. And yeah, it's totally fine to answer just for you. I don't expect you to know like all, <laughs> answer for all of humanity. Yeah. Um, since I know you're on Twitter, since you mentioned that, um, where can how how do people find you? How do people keep in touch with kind of what you're doing, your research, or want to get in touch with you? Yeah, so my Twitter is bmart87. It's a clever handle I picked when I was quite a bit younger. <laughs> um, I was born in 1987, so that's that's where that comes from. Um, and I'm on there quite a bit. It's a big mixture of kind of just random life stuff, a lot of science, and also you'll get a lot about field hockey and caribou because the team name is the Red Caribou. Okay. Thanks for spending some time with me, Ben. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Take care.